Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've spent my entire career as an advocate, connector, problem solver, and master communicator at the highest levels of government and corporate America. With She Said, She Said podcast, I'm sharing what I've learned that's helped me, and I'm drawing additional perspective from a broad range of women who are creating amazing opportunities for themselves and others. Their stories hold important advice and perspective about common challenges and the best ways to tackle them. I know your time is precious, but stick around. I think you'll find this investment in you well worth it. Hi friends, for many families, the holidays will look and feel very different this year. The added stress of coping with a pandemic that will either prevent us from seeing relatives or will present challenging social situations to navigate. Not to mention the added challenges that some families face navigating political divisions during a contentious election year. All of this can add to an already healthy level of stress. My guest on today's show is Dr. Donna Marks. She's a therapist and an expert on addiction. She's also the author of a book called Exit the Maze, One Addiction, One Cause, One Cure. When you hear Dr. Marks' perspective on the topic, including her own story about addiction, you may see addiction in a very different light. I know I did. And more importantly, I think you'll gain a deeper understanding of what are often misunderstood underlying causes. Dr. Mark's message is particularly appropriate heading into the holidays because it's one of hope, optimism, personal responsibility, and most importantly, self-compassion. She provides great food for the soul and at a time when many of us could really use that extra boost. Here's our conversation. Dr. Donna Marks, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, I'm delighted to have you, and this is such an incredibly important topic. This is a big, big problem in this country. A lot of people are suffering. Help us understand, is this just that we're more aware of the problem, or is the problem bigger than it's been in the past? I think it's both. I think that um, we're more aware because so many people have become addicted that um, we can't ignore it anymore. You know, the treatment centers are popping up everywhere. There's an overload of insurance premiums being paid out on, on treatment and um, the death rate is increasing exponentially. And so we can't ignore it anymore. But I do believe there's also an increase in addiction because uh, we be have become more of an addictive society. You know, in the past, we, we were taught more to delay gratification, to have patience, to wait. Uh, but now we're constantly inundated with, you know, eat this, smoke this, drink that, you know, get the new car, get the new girl, get the new fix, uh, the fix du jour. And so we have that mindset. And then also with electronics, you know, we get it right now, right now, right now. So the brain has uh, kind of accelerated at a rate of wanting things to happen on the quick fix um, modality. And that is really unfortunate because uh, we want to be able to, you know, 
stop that and, and let our minds work the way they were designed to work, which, which is, you know, quickly, but also to be able to rest and sit back and, and kind of just process things as they come. Right. Maybe take a step back and help us understand when we say addictive behavior or someone has an addiction, what are we talking about? What does addiction really mean? How is it defined clinically? Well, um, it's clinically defined as continuing to do the same behavior despite negative consequences. And, you know, uh, people like to quote Einstein, you know, the definition of insanity is repeatedly doing the same thing and expecting different results. And that's kind of overstated now, even in an addictive way. But really, it's when you do something and you think you have control, but it's obvious that you don't have control because those negative consequences continue to happen. So do there have to be negative consequences in order for it to meet that clinical definition? I believe that that is the definition because if someone's doing something and nothing bad is happening, then you know they may have a habit, they may have um, a pleasure, they may have something that that's in, they're enjoying. But you know that's a slippery slope too because then you have to get into more detail of what's negative consequences. It may not be you know many people are highly functioning uh, with their addictions. Mm-hmm. You know, the workforce is full of sex addiction, um, uh, pornography, video gaming uh, addictions, um, you know, but they're functioning at a very high level and it doesn't appear that there's negative consequences. A negative consequence can be something such as it's affecting your marital life, it's affecting your self-esteem, um, you don't understand why you're depressed, you haven't put it together yet that, you're, that the excessive amounts of your uh, alcohol intake or your social party life or whatever is actually what's causing that malaise inside of you. So we ha- that's why I say it's a slippery slope. We have to be careful that we do understand what negative consequences mean. Many people picture addiction as someone uh, you know, wobbling down the road with a brown paper bag in right. their hand or the person passed out on the park bench um, or someone who's, who's gained 300 pounds or you know, someone who's not functioning at all. And that's really, like any illness, the end game of the addiction. It's not the beginning or the middle stages of the disease. Yeah. Is it, so it sounds like what you're describing is something that people can be struggling with and maybe not even realize that's an addiction, that it is an addiction. That's correct. You know, we, we have our habits and uh, the difference between a habit, you know, is something you might do, but you're not, it's not causing any type of negative consequence. Um, but many people, you know, for example, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I love my candy, let's say, you know, I, I, that isn't one of my drugs of choice, but let's just say that that, you know, and so person will start eating candy and wind up eating, you know, way too much of it, a half a bag of it, sometimes a whole bag of it, and they'll gain 10 pounds. And so then they'll say, oh, I've got to get this weight off. They finally get all their willpower together. They get the food plan. They join the clinic. They get the exercise regiment going. And they stop, you know, uh, eating the candy and they lose the 10 pounds. So they think, oh, you know, I've got control. But what happens is slowly but surely that uh, part of the mind that is addicted you know, it says, you know, you, you, you've lost all this weight and you don't even think about candy anymore. So, you know, go ahead and have that dessert tonight after dinner. And boom, you know, the minute that food gets in the mouth and the brain starts going again, when can I get my next piece of, you know, chocolate cake? And, and it just, it, and then, then when you start again, it's even harder to quit the next time. And so over the years, it just becomes worse and worse and worse. 
Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, the environment that we are living in right now is, to state an obvious point, one of the most stressful periods of time that any of us have experienced. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. We're seeing spikes across the country. Um, we just had a very contentious election where our friends and family potentially are also divided. Um, it's very, very stressful. Talk about how the current environment can contribute and is everybody susceptible to uh, developing some kind of an addiction? So one of the things that I teach when I'm working with patients is that uh, in spite of the fact that we think that it's the environment that's affecting us, it's really what's going on inside of us that's affecting us. And you know, if you didn't live here and you didn't care what was happening in the US uh, concerning the election, it wouldn't be affecting you. Um, and you know, if you weren't being uh, living here and we are being affected by you know, lockdowns and masks and, and fear of getting sick, you know, that is a direct effect. However, we do have control over our reactions to things. So even when we get affected by um, external events, mm -hmm. what I teach people is what is this bringing up in you about your past? Because the most important person that's ever gonna take care of you is yourself. We can't be relying on the world and the government and all, the, all that that means, good and bad. We have to learn how to take care of ourselves and then when we get these reactions to actually sink into them and, and really explore what is this bringing up for me about my past and allow ourselves to feel those feelings and to release those feelings in healthy ways, not by going out on, on, on tirades. You know, um, it's okay to be angry, but to talk about it, give it words and to purge it in healthy ways, not by destru uh, destruction of, of other people's property or other people or character assassinations, but mainly to get to the fear underneath all of those emotions. Now, once we recognize that uh, for many people, what's going on right now, they had, ch they had things going on in the childhood that were crazy and insane. So here it is again, you know, the world is insane and I'm at the effect of it, but we're not at the effect of it. We can learn how to be observers of all that what's going on. It doesn't mean we deny the reality. It doesn't mean we deny the truth. It doesn't mean we just slough it off and la 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 la. It just means that we decide to react to it in a mature manner. And a mature manner means we feel our feelings about it and we allow them to be uh, processed and neutralized. And then we can stand from the place of being observers rather than reactors. Yeah. Yeah, very helpful. You've written this terrific book entitled Exit the Maze. I'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Thank but you. Talk about, if you would, how really the profession gets it wrong as it relates to treating addiction. What is it that it, the, I found the book an incredible read, by the way, which, I, which I've told you, um, but I was surprised um, by your thesis. So maybe talk a little bit about the thesis of the book. And, and, uh, and then I want to ask you about your own personal experience, because this is something that you, you know about personally, but maybe let's start with the book and the thesis of the book. Okay, thank you. Well, um, I believe that there's just one addiction, and that there's one cause and that it can be cured. And that, that's very controversial. Um, and I'll explain my position because I think it's often misunderstood. 
right now we have um, 50,000 treatment centers. It's billions and billions of dollars of industry. And we also have free 12-step programs. The correlation of the uh, relapse rate between the two is about the same. It's about a 25% recovery rate and about a 75% relapse rate. So any sane person can say something's not right here. I mean, right. who would take those odds on any other medical illness? So I believe that we haven't really fully tapped into what's what's really wrong in the treatment here. Uh, that was my that's my thesis. I do propose some solutions, and that and the solutions are number one to recognize that we don't understand addiction. We haven't understood it. Uh, we think that an addiction is alcohol over here, food over here, sex over here, gambling over here, work over here, and it's not. Uh, addiction is that emptiness that so, that so many people feel. It's that internal void, that feeling that something is missing. So it's almost like more the symptom as opposed to the disease itself. Is Correct. that what you're saying? Correct. So that void is constantly searching in the mind. You know, it's searching for the next thing. So what has happened in treatment is that a person will go to treatment for alcoholism and then they'll start something else. You know, they'll give up alcohol and then they'll get into, you know, love addict relationships mm. or they quit using cocaine and they start drinking or they quit smoking cigarettes and they start eating M&Ms or they, start, they stop eating and they go on compulsive uh, exercise regimes. So the addiction is never addressed. The, the, like you said, only the symptom of the addiction is addressed. So that's one problem. The second problem is that I think it's completely um, unrealistic to go away, as I did, to treatment for 30 days and often out of town, and there's no support system built into the treatment program. So the person goes to treatment, goes back to their same environment, and then they're supposed to just be good little recovering people and go to meetings with complete strangers with all the anxiety that they haven't learned to manage yet and all their stuff comes up and then you know they're told to not look at their past um, because you know that's dangerous or that's got nothing to do with your sobriety and so uh, you only look at your role in your in your past i'm talking about your past childhood you only look at your role you know in your past and you take responsibility for that which is really important to do mm -hmm. but for people who have been uh, brought up in painful childhoods this is not good advice um, because then it just gets stuffed like it always did and then it starts getting acted out in, in the rooms. <laughs> and there's plenty of people that act out with each other. And then um, often, you know, you're not talking about the, the, the height of mental health um, and, and recovery rooms. Uh, some people are extremely evolved, but um, some people that are just coming in, you know, they haven't learned uh, spiritually fit behavior yet. And so some of these new people that come in get exploited. So that's another shortcoming. So what I would like to see happen in treatment centers is that they have someone that they can, people that they can align with while they're in treatment, that they have a therapist 
that they are seeing while they're in treatment. So when they get out, they already have a good bond with that therapist, that they have um, a sponsor or a sober companion that they've gotten to know real well while they're in treatment. So it's just the next natural thing to be hanging out in meetings with that person. And, and that person's already been somewhat vetted, you know, before they're introduced. And then also that the family right now, we have in treatment uh, three to five days of family and the family's kind of separated. There isn't much family counseling. Um, and so the family's educated, but that, the, the, you know, this is like, can you imagine like you have a, a family who's had an addict in it for years? I mean, that, there's a lot of healing. Yeah, there's of a lot of work that needs to be done. I just think it's critical that the whole family be very involved in the whole treatment process, not a, a, a little ancillary thing here. Because if they don't heal together and they're not all a part of the recovery, I think that majorly reduces the chances. Now, I get criticized for that also. I get people telling me that's unethical that you work with the whole family. And my response to that is it's unethical not to when you're talking about addiction. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of shocking to me, frankly. Um, I, you know, because it stands to reason that the environment that the person who has been struggling is coming from, that there are triggers in that environment, either family members or other associates. So when, when you talk about ad, advising them, maybe talk a little bit about this notion of codependent behaviors as well, which I know you talk about in the book, and maybe talk about how the consultation or treatment of the family works to address those codependent behaviors. Does that make sense? Oh, of course, yes. Well, <clears throat> what happens is people um, uh, maladjust to maladjustment. You know, it's kind of like an ecological thing. You know, you, if something goes wrong over here, there's an adjustment in nature to kind of adapt to it. And so um, often people, you know, just become, um, they say the people who are watching the addict become more disturbed than the addict. The addict's medicating themselves and everyone else is watching the horror show. It's kind of like, you know, the shining, you know, you're watching, you're watching this person disintegrate before your eyes and getting more and more out of control and you get more and more scared and you're trying to do all these things to control it. What, what I would encourage people to do is to back off of that behavior and work on what's in you is trying to uh, correct the situation because that person has to want help. So there's ways of, of addressing that person. You can address that person with trying to control them, threatening them, uh, you know, anger on all kinds of ways, or you can be straight up and honest and give specific examples of your concerns, but do that from a place of love and care and concern. And so it's all about how you're communicating. And so in family therapy, it's still all about how you're communicating, to talk about the wounds, to talk about things that have gone wrong, how you want to see the relationship change, how you visualize the relationship, making sure that those visions are lined up on the same page, and then teaching people how to communicate and, and, and move through the blocks that are preventing that from happening. Yeah. Donna, maybe talk a bit about your own personal story and your own journey. Uh, in addressing um, your, your addiction. You talk a bit about that in the book, but maybe share with us how your, your suffering really became the impetus for your career and working to help others. Maybe talk a bit about that if you would. 
Sure. So I was born into addiction and I would just remember having a lot of pain in childhood uh, to the point I didn't want to be here on the planet. Um, I didn't realize that was an unnatural response to family life. And, um, but I did have this sense of a, a connection to some kind of force. And um, I would get these messages like, it's not your fault um, that you're, when I would get abused, it's not your fault. And so that was, I think, saved me um, quite a bit. Um, but things did get worse throughout my teens, and I, I did go uh, into a major depression and, um, and, and a suicidal attempt. I tried running away from home. I was very troubled, and at the time, there wasn't much help available, nor did we really understand uh, what we do now about how to raise children. Uh, you know, one of the points I want to make that's so important, I don't blame my parents at all. I'm totally... Um, all about being the kind of daughter, you know, that they would want me to be now rather than what they did wrong. Um, because we don't, there's so much, such a lack of understanding. So let's take, you know, we can't blame anybody or anything for addiction. I, I don't want to do that. There's reasons why people become addicted, but it doesn't do any good to blame. And this is what I was talking about earlier with facing the truth, but without the blame. Mm. So anyhow, I, I was very troubled. Um, I, I, I got married to get out of my house and had a child when I was 16 years old, divorced at 18. And um, so part of me is going off on directions of, you know, of, uh, you know, off the, off the rails. Um, and then there's still that other part of me that's like, you can do better than this, you know, go to school, make something of yourself. And I always thought I would be a therapist. Um, my friends used to confide in me, my family confided in me. So I always, that was my dream. And so I, I did struggle and went through school, got married and divorced. And, um, and that's when I, I hit an emotional bottom. And I went to 30-day treatment program, out of town, came back, had a very hard time acclimating into the recovery programs. And so I got uh, tons of therapy, all these workshops, all the gestalt therapy, then I get certified gestalt therapy or hypnosis and get certified in hypnosis. And it just went on and on and on and the spiritual quest all over the planet. And after 20 years of that, I really didn't feel much better than when I uh, first got sober. In fact, in some ways I felt less integrated. I felt more lost and, and that void was even stronger because now, you know, I, I, my addiction had switched around so much. I didn't really know who I was or what was going on other than I was not drinking and drugging. I'd quit smoking and, and et cetera, et cetera. I, after a surgery, I was given some pain medication. I think that was the beginning of my relapse. Um, I wasn't abusing it, but it did affect my thinking. Mm. And um, I, I got divorced again. And my um, I have uh, I'd been married to three different people, <clears throat> had three children, and um, and I'm I'm I'm, 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 go, I'm in therapy by the way uh, with someone who was a wonderful therapist but didn't understand addiction. I wound up relapsing after 23 years. I'm uh, saying you know I, nothing has worked for me, so I might as well just have a good time. <laughs> so <laughs> that lasted for a while, and then I I actually um, you know had a, a, a call to to reckoning one night um, and was like screaming at God, you know, what have I done wrong? I've tried so hard to be a good person to get better and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I got a very clear message that time. Like it's, you know, Donna, it's not, it's not me that doesn't love you. You don't love yourself. And bang, you know, that, that reality of, oh my God, you know, everything that I've done has just been another addiction, you know, go here, go here, do this, do that. And not really, really know how to love myself 
because I had, you know, those of us that have been in these kinds of childhoods, we don't know how. We don't know what it means to take care of ourselves. We hear it all the time. You got to love yourself. You got to take care of yourself. But what does that actually mean? Right. So I really analyzed that. And I had been a, a student of A Course in Miracles for a long time, which is learning how to choose love over fear. And I really started breaking that down. It, it takes thought. It takes contemplation. It takes teaching myself as if I were a, a little tiny girl. I have to actually teach myself. No, it's probably not a good idea to go play with that person because they don't really have your best interests at heart. Or no, you probably shouldn't stay up till three o'clock in the morning watching scary movies because you might have bad dreams. Or yeah, it's probably a good idea for you to take a nap today because you're having a hard time functioning. Or maybe, you know, one cup of coffee is enough, not 10, you know, just this kind of I actually started writing down way, ways to love yourself, including in the morning and getting up and thanking God for the day and, and thanking God at night. And I kind of took a lot of tools that I had learned from so many different things that I had done, but I actually started implementing them on a minute to minute basis. So what happened is I started getting happier and happier and more and more joyous. And I started teaching patients how to, to really love themselves. And we, you know, when, when that happened, it wasn't about the addiction anymore. Like people just started kind of like letting me know, like, oh, by the way, I quit smoking because I realized that my lungs are important. <laughs> like they're a beautiful, vital organ in my body. And by the way, this is, this is stuff we should teach children right. from their moments of, of, you know, understanding. Like the reason we don't want to eat this or the reason we don't want to do that is because your body is so important and so precious. It's a, such a valuable thing. And so when we start teaching that early on, a, when a child sees other people smoke and they say, here, come have a cigarette, come have a joint, come have a drink, they'll be going, I don't think I want to put that in my body. Or even if they do, they're going to feel so good about themselves. They're going to say, oh, I don't like the way this makes me feel. I don't like coughing. I don't like feeling out of control. So it's going to have the opposite effect that it does um, for those of us that have that emptiness inside. And it feels good, <laughs> feels good to escape that emptiness and to get that substitute for love. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing, that's an amazing story. You talk about setting that example for children, even in situations where, and, and especially in situations where they're not being abused, where they're in loving homes, but you know, there is such, and we talked about this at the beginning of the conversation, there is such an inclination toward popping a pill for anything that ails you. And the diagnosis of ADHD and related behaviors in children is literally off the charts. How do we teach kids, recognizing that sometimes that medication is absolutely necessary, but how do we teach kids that self-control, both the self-love and also the self-control at the same time when they're children? I think this is a big, big struggle for parents right now. Right. Well, uh, ADHD and childhood bipolar and a lot of different things are um, the, the diagnosis du jour right now. And I don't want to say that I'm anti-medication because in rare cases, it's critical for a person's well-being, whether they're a child or an adult. But we're handing it out as if it's, um, you know, Advil or Tylenol. And there's definite studies of proof that children who are on Ritalin and other Adderall and things like that are much more susceptible to becoming addicted later on. In fact, nowadays, uh, if you're in the rooms of, of addiction, you hear all the time that people used it 
intentionally as one of their drugs of choice because it, you know, it, it's like speed. So, uh, you know, we have to be very careful. What I, so there's two answers here. One, that we have to teach parents that just because the child's buzzing around in the classroom or acting manic um, or, or can't concentrate, let's explore why. Because half the time they're being sent to school with having a bowl of sugar called cereal or, uh, you know, not having proper nutrition um, they're also, you know, grabbing a can of Coca-Cola, which is sugar and caffeine. Um, the parents aren't teaching them that, no, this is not what your body needs, especially when you go to school. It needs nutritious food so that you, that brain can work, you know, and they explain that these organs in the body. And, uh, and so that might be one of the reasons. It can be as simple as a diet so that they're, they're going to school ramped up and, and then they're crashing and they can't concentrate. Um, or it could be that something's troubling going on in the home. I know in my case, um, I, I, I wasn't eating uh, that kind of food, but uh, there was so much heavy duty stuff going on that I could not concentrate when I went to school. Mm -hmm. And so I would have been diagnosed as ADHD. Thank God I wasn't. I had um, two children that were, and uh, we want you to get these kids on medication. I'm like, well, slow down here. You know, um, there's stuff going on and I will address it and, you know, but they're not going on pills. That's just not happening. Um, so I think that, you know, we need to really be educated as parents. You can get everything you need to know on the web, but don't go on to promotional sites for different medications, go into non-promotional sites and really read about this. Yeah. And then in terms of um, emotional management, that's not difficult. That's a if the parents are managing their emotions, the, the children are going to copy their parents. But all children, you know, at times when they're growing up, they get mad and they get sad. So if they get mad, you sound no, you don't throw your toy at me. That's not okay. Um, one time, I remember my my daughter threw a pancake at me, and you know, started laughing, and she started laughing. But I went over to her and firmly I said, "I'm laughing, but this is not okay." I understand you're angry. Tell me what you're angry about. Don't show me, you know, talk it out. Don't act it out. And so that's what we want to teach children to talk about their anger, but to do it in a kind and loving way, which is much harder to do when you're angry, by the way. But yeah. if it becomes a natural discipline, it's not so hard. And then when you're sad, cry, feel the sorrow, feel the sadness. You know, we have tears for two reasons, to cleanse our eyes and to cleanse our hearts. So when we're allowing that to come out, oxytocin's released in the brain and you feel better, you don't hang on to that pain because otherwise as you grow up, you wind up carrying around buckets of those teardrops that you didn't cry and it weighs you down. Yeah, maybe talk a little bit about, we've touched on the current environment and the current stress level for someone who has suffered trauma this type of stress can be very excruciating. It can be excruciating even if you haven't suffered trauma, but maybe some advice for ways that a person can kind of hold it together or things that you can do right now to recenter yourself, things that are working for you and working for your patients. Right, so the first thing is to take care of yourself. I'm committed to taking care of myself no matter what happens here. And uh, to be able to, to do what I suggested earlier, when you find yourself really getting ramped up in a reaction, consider the possibility, and of course you're concerned about what's going on in the country, but, but consider the possibility 
that this is kicking up something about your past. And just allow yourself to kind of take some time out, turn off the TV, turn off the radio, close your eyes. What is this? Is there any connection here? Does, does this president or this incoming president or these Congress people, does this remind me of anyone or anything in my past? And see what happens. And if it does, you know, it might be a good idea to get a therapist and talk about that or to talk about it, you know, with a friend or to even do some journaling. You know, I'm a, I just embrace those emotions so that you can, so that you can get rid of them because, you know, it's normal to have responses to situations, but strong reactions are always about the past. Mm. You know, somebody bumps into you in the grocery store, you know, you might get annoyed. If they apologize, you say, no problem. But if, if, if you had somebody as a child that constantly pushed you around and somebody bumps you into the grocery store, you're not going to be mildly annoyed. You're going to be outraged. That's the difference. So people that are experiencing that type of outrage right now, I guarantee you there's something in the past that that's anchored to. And you want to deal with that because that's affecting, that's not affecting the president's, that's affecting your serenity. And so we won't, you know, we are in charge of our own well-being. You are the most important person you will ever care about. You are the most important person you will ever love. You are the most important person you will ever respect. How about advice for navigating the holidays, even though they are likely to look very different from what they have in the past. Maybe that simplifies it for some people. I don't know. But for, to the extent that people will be together to some degree over the upcoming holidays, maybe advice for navigating what can be very challenging when people have strong differences of opinion and have also sort of been through a traumatic situation. Yes. So if you're talking about the possibility of, of um, what are you talking about? Like the possibility of talking about politics during the holidays? Family, yeah, I think or? politics is probably a ripe one, even though, okay. like I said, I mean, many people are not able to gather. Our family is not able to, to gather uh, for Thanksgiving. And then, of course, the you know Hanukkah and the Christmas holidays, it's unclear what those look like or going to look like. Um, but to the extent that people are getting together and they have family members or friends who have different points of view, maybe navigating those gatherings in a way that is that preserves your sanity and frame of mind, if you will. So if people have the skills to be able to listen to totally opposing points of view, and this isn't just politics, it's been going on for a long time, it's usually religion and politics, Right. Um, to just listen. But you can't do that if you're in that reactive mode. You cannot do it because you get flooded. You get flooded, 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 and you're wrong, and I'm right, and, and no, you're wrong, and I'm right. And so if you cannot do that, if you are not there, it's okay, but just having a, a pact. You know, this is uh, Hanukkah, this is Christmas, this is Thanksgiving. Let's focus on what we are grateful for and thankful for. And let's kind of take those topics off the table. And I would even suggest that you have those agreements before you get together with people. Like we want to get together, we want to have people over, or we want to come over. Um, you know, do you have a policy on, on t discussing politics right now? <laughs> because, you know, we just don't want to go there right now. Um, uh, or, or, you know, whatever the case may be. 
so that you're not caught in those situations that just ruin the whole day because you're better off setting up uh, social events where you're going to feel comfortable. So that's one thing. But as a family and as a whole, um, you know, we have become so accustomed that things have to be perfect. And so I want my holiday, this holiday to be like the perfect one before, you know, whether it was or not, that's how we remember it. And that doesn't open up the possibility to a new perfection, you know, a new way. And so just looking for me to just look at how much Christmas and Hanukkah and, 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 and all holidays have changed since I was young. We, you know, we used to make decorations, not because we had to financially, but because my grandmother loved doing it and she was good at it. And we painted gold Flemish flower. We made homemade ornaments and Christmas cookies and, you know, all kinds of things. And um, when I went over to, you know, with uh, some Jewish friends, they were doing the, the Hanukkah candles and prayers and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's just beautiful. So a lot of that's lost now. It was just such a, a more of a hands-on experience. Now we're ordering off of online and, you know, picking up dinner already made and all kinds of things. So I would encourage people to get back to some of that family time, old-fashioned um, goodness where, you know, each person might make a dish for Thanksgiving and, and have kids participate with the cooking and talk about what the holiday represents and what it means to them and what they're thankful for. And the gift giving can change focus too. It doesn't have to be all about materialistic, but it can be about doing favors. Um, if you can't, you know, teaching children to, to respect that maybe their grandparents can't come over this, this year. Um, and so that they understand, you know, they love you very much, but they're in a high risk because grandpa has a heart condition and grandma had, um, you know, has a, a lung condition. And so if they get sick, they may not get well, but there's, we can call them, we can Zoom them, we can take over food and drop it off for them. There's lots of things we can do to feel like we're giving of ourselves and that, you know, to, to have that feeling of gratitude. Yeah. So, but there's lots of ways that we can get through this and even um, in a very positive way. I have been so blessed during this whole virus. I said, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to let it affect me negatively. I'm just not going there. And I didn't, it hasn't, you know, I've had more time to write, to read, to um, spend time with my husband, my kids, you know, it's just been great. It's just yeah. really been terrific. But, you know, I have to watch my mind because it'll start judging it and how long is it going to last and why in the vaccine and, 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 but I just say, okay, well, that's interesting information. I'm going to put that mind just like the news channels and it's just a bunch of la, 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 la. And I'm just going to stay centered into my own sense of gratitude. It's such important advice, especially for people who are in a potentially sort of health compromised situation. If you're an older adult, those folks in particular really are unlikely to be able to celebrate these holidays in the way that we have, have come to know. Maybe talk a little bit more about advice for them. You've just shared some of your thoughts about what you're, what you're doing, but maybe other ways that that maybe they can be looking at the situation and also how we can help support them. Yes, so for, for the people that are compromised, first of all, to not make them feel guilty or bad, to respect that this is what they need to do to feel safe 
And like I said earlier, you are the most important person to ever take care of yourself. And if you don't feel safe going out for the holidays or anywhere else for that matter, there's nothing wrong with that. You're keeping your stress level at a minimum will keep your health at a maximum. So, you know, to, to help the family members accept that and understand that. And um, when you're communicating that you're not going to your family, tell them we're going to really miss you. We love you so much. Um, let's set up a Zoom meeting. And, um, and then also, you know, the, uh, the family members can call the, the, the elderly and say, what can we do for you? This is, this is a holiday. What, what can we do for you? And um, can we pick up groceries for you? Can, you know, rather than just have them delivered, you know, can we bring you um, some Thanksgiving food uh, or, you know, a holiday meal, uh, whatever the case may be, to keep that sense of connection. And maybe, why don't we call each other every day or every couple of days? Let's add a little extra thing on there and kind of, you know, just as if we would be going shopping together or spending time together, we can still do that. It just has to change form. But mainly ask them, you know, what, what can we do for you? What do you need from us that, that we could help you through this? Because we know it's going to be hard for you to be alone, to be at home. But I, I don't want you to feel lonely. And I want to be there to support you and help you. So what can I do? Yeah, it's really, really great advice. Donna, if you, as you look back um, on your career and on this terrific book that you've written, which again, the title is Exit the Maze, One Addiction, One Cause, One Cure, What's the impact that you hope to have had? Well, my mission is to save as many millions of lives as possible. And I don't think that's going to happen through having a war on addiction. The only thing that ever happens in wars is that people get killed. What I'd like to see happen is that it become a part of our consciousness, that each one of us is a beautiful, important, valuable human being, and that we raise children to believe that about themselves. So that the thought of putting uh, toxins in their body, you know, uh, nicotine and, and, and drugs and, and trans fats and unhealthy things, that, you know, that, that's the number one cause of unnatural deaths because those toxins are what cause the heart disease, the lung disease, the kidney disease, you know, the brain diseases, you know, et cetera. So if we teach children how important they are, and not just through words, but the way we treat them. And then we role model that behavior for themselves. We won't have to fight addiction. It just will be unnatural to be addicted. So I think that you know, that's my mission is to, to really help raise the consciousness about addiction. Um, it's not that person here at the other extreme. It's a progressive illness. And just like cancer, don't wait until you have a big old lump coming out of your uh, chest before you go to the doctor you know, take care of yourself and educate yourself. Because if you wait until you have stage four cancer, you're in real trouble. But if you could see signs and symptoms like blackouts or, you know, un unmanageable weight con control issues, struggling your whole life and, you know, that you're, um, you know, you can't stop doing the electronics or whatever the case may be. If you can recognize that, that that's not healthy behavior and learn alternatives, you know, like kids used to do the cool things like play with dough and color. <laughs> but even as adults, we can go for walks, we can watch the sunrise, we can read our favorite book, we can listen to our favorite music. There's so many things to do. It, once we, we shift our consciousness to that quick fix and to know I want to grow into who am I? I? I'm here, I have a reason, 
and a purpose and a mission. And so I want to feel good about myself and I want to feel that I'm here to share and receive love and to fulfill my purpose. That's why we're all here. We're not here to self-destruct and we're not here to destroy each other. We're here to share and receive love. So once we shift from self-destruction, fear-based anger and guilt into healing ourselves and raising children who love themselves so much that they don't want to hurt themselves, then the addiction won't, there won't be a war. It will just be something that we did back in the, you know, 1900s and 2000s. Yeah. Donna, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate you being here again. Dr. Donna Marks, the book is called Exit the Maze, One Addiction, One Cause, One Cure. Really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Friends, for more information on Dr. Donna Marks, her website is drdonnamarks.com. I've included a link in the show notes for this episode, episode 128. And I've also included a link to her terrific book entitled Exit the Maze, One Addiction, One Cause, One Cure. And also, friends, if you're enjoying She Said, She Said podcast, I could really use your help. If you have an extra minute and you happen to be listening to us on iTunes, please click review and give us five stars. And if you have an extra minute, include some nice feedback. I love hearing from you and I truly, truly appreciate the fact that you've joined us and that you already send me such great feedback and input. I really, really appreciate it. Those reviews on iTunes, by the way, help us move She Said, She Said podcast up the charts, and that helps others to find this content more easily. But of course, another way folks can find us is if you share us with them. There are lots of ways to do that, including a quick screenshot of the episode. If you're listening on your phone, you can share it to your Instagram stories or to Reels. I would be incredibly grateful. And finally, whatever your plans are this holiday, I wish you and your loved ones safety and love and time together, even if it's over Zoom or FaceTime with those who are unable to gather this year. Take care, and I'll see you next time.